0: Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com.
2: Screw the trout. I'm going to put a
3: handful of them on my cream of wheat. What you know it, I wiped my ass with the only buff
1: I had. I ain't never seen nobody cast a rod as bad as you. They'll keep your phone dry, but nobody
2: will be able to f- hear you. Is- Good morning, Degenerate Anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast, where we call it a scene, I call it disaster, down here, the kids grow up faster. Oh, I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles <laughs> Nolte.
1: And, uh, and to everyone who caught that song reference... <laughs> Round of applause and, and a round of drinks on me if I ever yes. run into you at the bar. Solid. Yes,
2: I'm assuming I, I'm going to say not many people did catch it, but that's okay. Not. We'll explain. We'll explain. That was a tip of the hat to the band Operation Ivy, who inspired our new bent theme music. And we want to yeah. know what do you guys think. We what love do you it. you think we love it. Yeah, we love it.
1: I, I think it's fantastic. I would listen to that song anytime. But yes, <laughs> it's weird, man. The way that like are the timing of our song changed happened. Cause there was that I, whole, I there was that I, whole yeah. subject of discussion <laughs> that came up in, in social media recently. And, yep. and so like, just so you guys know, cause you're not all following this. Somebody, and I can't remember who it was, some listener asked if, if he's the only one that rocks out to the, the bent theme song in the car. yeah, And we're really happy that people like it, but the truth is like when we were putting the show together initially, when we first started, we just had to grab something that sort of fit from yeah. the stock music website. It wasn't what we had in mind. We're like, ah, oh, that'll work. And we didn't hate it, but it was it was just not exactly what we had in mind. So we've been we've been talking about and itching to try and get something written uniquely yep. for us. And yep. we finally got it done. So that's the new song.
2: Things at Meat Eater tend to like come together real fast. So literally, it was like, oh, we need a song. Are, are you cool with this? Do you like this? I'm like, yeah, I like it too. And we just went with it. So yeah. that, that's that's where the original theme came from. Um, but the studio band we worked with for the new theme is actually from Philly, represent East Side. And we got to give a shout out to Hayden Samick, who uh, works behind the scenes with Phil on our show. He's the one that set up the band, orchestrated the whole thing. And uh, we had a meeting with them, and we were like, "Yeah, just make it sound kind of like this. Oh, yeah! And I, I think they nailed
1: it. Oh, they totally nailed it. It, it was, like I said, I, I would listen to that song anytime. And, and we're pumped, because I mean, the truth is, it, you already know this, but Joe and I are huge op Ivy fans. And for those who are unfamiliar, Operation Ivy is a historically significant band in the punk scene. Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. kind of they just kind of appeared in the late 1980s, <laughs> right. made one badass album, and then vanished. It was just like boom, yep, here it is, mic drop, and they're out. But their their legacy, like for a band that only had one album, their legacy has endured amazingly. Like I'm, I'm guessing some of you have heard of Rancid. Well, Tim Armstrong, the the legendary frontman was the guitarist in Operation Ivy, and Matt yep. Freeman, Rancid's bass player and also one of the best bass players ever, was also in Op Ivy.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And while those two dudes went on to be, like, punk Hall of Fame people, like, they got, yeah. like, punk rock Hall of Fame status, Op Ivy's frontman, Jesse Michaels, just went on to become a lunatic.
1: <laughs> that's that's harsh. But well, it's seriously, the, it's not wrong. You're not wrong. The,
2: the dude went off the deep end. And even if you have no interest whatsoever in his music, do yourself a favor and look up the Jesse Michaels thrash metal blog on YouTube. I, because because I can't help myself. Here's a little clip montage. What I like doing is lying in a bathtub, taking
0: a shit, and calling it self spa treatment.
2: This is the it this. Now, now. Piss on my severed head. I'm not kidding, okay? I like funk.
1: I I will admit, even being an Operation Ivy fan, I had no <laughs> idea that existed until you were like, hey, dude, have you seen this? I'm like, no, I'm, who's seen that? And I think it's just proof that, like, uh, that to me is proof of what's wrong with, with the whole punk scene because that's what happens to, like, a true punk when mm. they grow up. No, mm-hmm. nothing good if you're like really like a true punk you, like you shouldn't survive into your 30s cuz cuz you wind up <laughs> there and
2: That's fair. Yeah. I,
1: yeah. That's hard. like I was never a real punk cuz like that didn't happen to me and and I think like when I listen to those or I watch those I think I think Michael's is is both clinically depressed and completely straight edge. Right. But if he wasn't, I'd suggest he could probably use a drink. Right? He'd be like, "Hey man, <laughs> well, yeah, let's Have a whiskey and talk about it." <laughs> I don't know, but on that subject, I think we need to move off of punk rock and uh, and and think more about drinking and let's let's get into that's my bar.
2: Yeah, let's do that. and everyone will be shocked to hear um, probably that we're headed back to Wisconsin and what? I always knew th- yeah, I always <laughs> knew the state punched above their weight when it came to fishing and drinking, uh, but until we started doing this show, I had no idea the extent to which Sskanies dominate the fishing bar scene. Fishing mm-hmm. bars are like a goddamn institution there. Uh damn straight. And for those of you who, who are who were not super enthralled by like our 80s punk conversation, how about what we're gonna do? We'll stick to that era, but let's switch it up. We'll switch up the details. Perhaps you were more into Pac-Man, Frogger, Nuthugger shorts, and sweatbands.
1: Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. You'll remember that the goal of our That's My Bar segment is to pay respect to those most important cultural institutions great fishing bars
2: respect mad respect mad That's respect. Right. and we, we, will, love them. we will we will never achieve our goal of properly documenting all the great watery watering holes worldwide without your help you are critical in this and you know yes. you've got a favorite fishing bar or 10 perhaps <laughs> take some time and pay homage to those hallowed places and send us what you come up with okay please Yes, Please.
1: we 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 get some good ones. This week's submission comes from Mike Whitlinger, and and he wrote something so compelling,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we're not even gonna mess with it. Like yeah, we're we not even gonna interfere. We can't. No, we're just we're just gonna read Mike's ode to his favorite childhood fishing place.
2: It's it's that good where it stands alone, and that's rare. I gotta say mm-hmm. so. Yep. Props to Mike. And uh, and we begin. Being from Wisconsin. The bar talk makes me want to both wet a line and my whistle. I'd like to recommend one of my favorite scotty bars of all time. It might just be more of a memory than a real place at this point, but I'll submit it here for your reading pleasure. I
1: started fishing around age two. My parents would take me to Pioneer Lake in northern Wisconsin. Directly across from the boat launch area was the coolest bar I could ever imagine. After long days of fishing, evening hours were generally spent at the bar.
2: Enter Maple View Resort, aka Oshitski's Polish Retreat. <laughs> <laughs> that's like being, being mostly Polish, that's great. Well, that was sort of their name. They sold t-shirts that read Oshitski's, but I think their surname was actually Osicki. Of course, I had the Oshitsky's t-shirt and as a preteen wore it proudly every chance I got. Picture
1: the early 80s. Nuthugger shorts, Sweatbands, back when dads had hair and lots of it. All the photos from the fish cleaning station, which is within a stone's throw of the bar, of course, seem to contain sons, fathers, marlboros, blats, (laughs) and plenty of 40 plus inch Essoc species for the wall or table.
2: To a six year old fishing freak kid like me, it was the ultimate bar. Every wall held fish huge glass-encased musky mounts in various weedy or woody habitats. Monster walleye. Four-pound perch. Fish as far as my eyes could see, and I swear every one of those mounts were world records. From my youthful yet extensive experience, those muskies most certainly weighed 100 pounds each, and the walleyes at least half that. To top it off, at the end of that beautiful fish rainbow held the world's best cherry cokes, always with extra grenadine and two Real maraschino cherries, if you ask nicely.
1: They also had Pac-Man, Frogger, other video games, a pool table or two, and hummingbird feeders outside the massive windows overlooking the picturesque lakeside. These windows were artfully sprinkled with a handful of fake bullet hole stickers. The veracity of the holes in question and how they got there left my six-year-old self in a constant state of wonder. The video games didn't fascinate me nearly as much as fishing and whenever I could pull a buddy away from plinking quarters to go
2: fishing from the resort dock that's what we do the most memorable night was late dark breezy freezing cold with a constant drizzle and we were just hammering fish on the end of the dock two kids roughly six and eight years old supervised, in quotes, he put that in quotes, supervised through that legendary bar window from a dry, warm, alcohol-laden, short distance away. (laughs) Drenched and chattering, we were lip-ripping 14-inch perch left and right from the end of that bar dock. No shit, or no shitskies, should I say. Writing this has reminded me that I really need to make it back there
1: and pay my respects either to a bar well done or a memory well embellished. Hopefully both.
2: That was pure poetry. I mean, that was like poetic perfection. Mike, let us know how it goes when you finally do make that pilgrimage back. And I hope it's exactly as you remembered it. And do us a favor, send photos. And Mm -hmm. all of you out there listening, take a cue from Mike and send us your bar nominations. If they're half as good as that one, they will probably get our attention.
1: I've never been to that bar, but I feel like I
2: have. Oh, yeah.
1: Much <laughs> like Mike, I, I accompanied my pops to many a Wisconsin drinking establishment after days on the water. And, and that story, like that email that he sent, it just got me thinking about those days, which then got me thinking about what we used to call our fishing equipment when I was a kid.
2: Yeah, you've been thinking about this a lot. In fact, Miles is going to delve into a touchy subject among some anglers in today's Weekly Word. Webster's Dictionary defines fish as
1: I once worked with a guy who proudly identified as a North Carolina redneck. We'll call him Chris. Let me be clear. Chris was neither dumb nor uneducated. He was the kind of person who could frame up a wall, repair a hull and rebuild a Chevy short block with the same set of rudimentary tools. He never once met a vehicle. He couldn't pilot from sport fishers to yachts, to jet boats, to super cubs, to G fours. If it swam, crawled, flapped or ran, he could find it catch it, and kill it. I can't say I always liked Chris. His skills were only overshadowed by his ego, but he earned my respect. When no one else was around, we'd sometimes share beers in a quiet conversation. In those moments, his drawl seemed to dissipate, and he'd admit to a love of books and language. When anyone else was in earshot, though, he mispronounced words and mangled grammatical phrasings. His language became intentionally crude and exactingly imprecise. I actually once heard him yell at a client, I ain't never seen nobody cast a rod as bad as you. And that exchange hit on the one semantic line in the sand that he could not stand to hear violated. If anyone called a fishing rod a pole in his presence, he would set upon them as if they had just insulted the good name of his maternal grandmother, which is apparently a big thing in the South. More than once I overheard him exclaim, you grow beans on poles, you fish with rods. Here in the U.S., the terms rod and pole are sometimes used interchangeably, and as far as official American dictionary definitions are concerned, they're equivalent. But few topics inspire as much polarization in fishing culture as the rod versus pole debate. What you call that long cylindrical thing used to deliver bait and wrangle fish says a lot about how you identify as an angler. Such semantic sensitivity might seem unnecessarily divisive, Who gives a shit what you call the thing you fish with? We argue enough about fishing style or species. Do we really need another point of contention? Well, no. But like it or not, fishing is what linguists refer to as a discourse community or an insulated network of people who come together around a shared set of goals. And we judge who is in and who is out based on the language they use. When I was a kid, we had polls. My dad had polls. My uncles always had the best polls. I was usually saving up my money for a new pole. In fact, the first nice pole I ever bought myself was branded the Berkeley Power Pole, back before hydraulic shallow water anchors were a thing. But when I got older and more serious about fishing, I started reading fishing books and magazines and hanging around tackle shops. And I noticed that the real sticks, they didn't use poles. They used rods. As I started working my way into the fishing industry, I figured out that calling a rod a pole at the boat ramp was kind of like calling a deck a board at the skate park. In his classic novella, Norman McLean wrote, Always, it was to be called a rod. If someone called it a pole, my father looked at him as a sergeant in the United States Marines would look at a recruit who had just called a rifle a gun. And though McLean was describing a scene from the 30s, the same attitude holds in contemporary angling circles. A quick search through online fishing forums will produce a slew of comments like, I cringe when I hear someone refer to a fly rod, spinning rod, or casting rod as a pole. Or, A fishing rod is what fishermen use. A fishing pole is what rednecks and country bumpkins use. In that last quote, you can hear that the two different terms also carry a connotation of social class and standing. Though language policing comes off as obnoxious and snooty, rods and poles are completely separate tools, and their differences have absolutely nothing to do with superiority or class warfare. The distinction between the two comes from our angling-obsessed buddies across the pond in England. If it's got guides and a reel, it's a rod. But if it's a long stick with a line attached to the end, it's a pole. Here in the States, cane poles used to be common tools, but very few people fish with them anymore. Just about everybody I know uses rods with reels. Certain folks in the UK who target especially spooky carp will tell you that casting a line, even a lightly weighted one, makes too much disturbance on the water. They proudly use poles, some of them up to 30 feet long, to delicately dap their baits in front of finicky rubber lips. So if you want to get technical about it, that's the difference between rods and poles. I use the term rod to describe my fishing implements because it's accurate and it avoids annoying rebuttals. But I don't actually care that much. I will say that it's pretty damn funny to walk into a fly shop and ask where they keep their fly poles, so long as you're not hoping to get good customer service. And speaking of the fly folks, Tenkara became the hot new thing in certain fly fishing circles about a decade ago. If you're not familiar, Tenkara is a stripped down form of fly fishing without a reel. The fly line attaches directly to the tip of the rod. I I mean, pole. And to be honest, Tenkara would actually be fun if not for the people who love it. Tenkara seems to attract the most holier-than-thou uppity folks I've ever met in fishing. They proselytize harder than Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints combined. But here's the part that I love. Every Tenkara enthusiast I've ever met proudly refers to their equipment as rods. But technically, they're wrong. So, all you Tenkara people out there, I I hate to break it to you, but you fish with poles.
2: Well done, man, and this rings so true for me. Like, when I was little, my gramps always said, grab your fishing poles. Yeah, that's what they were. But now, if someone refers to a rod as a pole, I instantly label them a googan, like you're a (laughs) googan, which is uh, maybe a little harsh. But at at least, look, you've clarified the terms, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there is now clarification, which means everyone that calls a rod a pole is now officially wrong. Like, that is wrong. (laughs) It's no longer tomato, tomato. You're just wrong. So (laughs) Uh,
1: use that, There there you go. The judginess of the fishing (laughs) community about about the terminology right there.
2: Use it. That's what we're here for is to educate you guys. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, we can move on to clarifying what's happening in fishing's current events. It's time for Fish News. Fish News.
0: (laughs) That escalated quickly.
2: So that little story I did about using goldenrod gall flies for trout bait, Remember that yeah. last week? Oh yeah. That re- that resonated, right? I've <laughs> got sure quite did. a few notes about that, ranging from just like, Hey, my pawpaw taught me about this years ago, to thanks for spilling the beans on my secret bait, you jack wagon. Um <laughs> I I'm I'm not I'm not that surprised because I figure more people were gonna be in tune with that than me. I had no idea. But I think my favorite came from Tom Nezik. He sent us an email and he yeah. says, This is good, right? He says It's really good. Um his brother, Steve, isn't much of a and reel angler, but he's just generally big into the nature, you know what I mean? And apparently foraging. And he sent along a video of his bro hunting down goldenrod gall larva to eat. And I watched this and I got to say, he almost made it sound appetizing and delicious. There's no almost. He made it sound incredibly <laughs> appetizing and delicious. I don't know <laughs> he, if I believe him. But that's yeah. how he made it sound. He, he describes them as having a sugary taste similar to maple syrup mixed with banana, and they crunch as if they contain crystallized sugar. And I said, well, hell, <laughs> that screw the trout. Great. I'm going to put a handful of them on my cream of wheat. You know what I'm saying? They should be right next to the wet walnuts at Baskin Robbins. But oh. uh, yeah, apparently Goldenrod Gulp. Good stuff. Tom, thanks for sending that. Um, it was both amusing and informative. So that's what I got for shout outs this week. I just got a quick one. Uh
1: Andrew Peterson wrote in basically saying, because well, last week we talked about Toby's Tavern in our That's My Bar segment. Yeah, yeah. And and he appreciated the shout out for Toby's Tavern, but he doesn't think we gave it enough credit as a fishing bar mm-hmm. because it is located, he claims, within eyesight of some exceptional, exceptional pike fishing water. So uh, apparently we we didn't, again, I've never been to Toby's Tavern, but now I right. have yet another reason to go because he, he, he claims that the fishing there is incredible in addition to the drinking. So, you know, yet another point in favor of Toby's Tavern as a fantastic fishing bar.
2: Toby's Tavern, pike and beers and um, Lion Mounts having sex. Good place. Good place. Uh, okay. Well, okay, so let's move on to the real news now. Remember, this is a competition, as always. Miles and I do not know what stories the other guys bring to the table, and at the end of it, our uh, official punk rock DJ... And audio engineer. Phil will weigh in on who is the news winner. I do not have the floor to open. That goes to you, sir. Big advantage. It's true.
1: It's true. Yes. I, I'm I'm gonna sidebar for a second and and I would love to know Phil's favorite punk band.
2: Oh, uh, Phil, you've been called this. out.
1: You just called him out as the punk DJ, so I'm just curious.
2: What's your favorite just, punk band? Uh, well, Phil? it's true. Don't say MXPX or we won't like you as much anymore. So it's true.
1: All right. Uh <laughs> get, Getting into the, the the goods here, this story is is a follow-up to an article that Spencer Newharth published on the Meteor website a couple years ago. Spencer does a fact-checker series that you should check out because he he yes. runs down myths and legends and and these stories that, you know, the culture of, of, of fishing and, and hunting has a bunch of, of, of things that we take as gospel and that we pass among each other that aren't necessarily true at all. Some of them are. Some them are complete bullshit. Right. And so when, when Spencer was a kid, he asked his dad why they had stocked so many damn bullheads in their family farm pond. And okay. his father's response was that they hadn't. Why, why would they do that? And he went on to tell Spencer that ducks were to blame. Uh-huh. In, in doing so, Spencer's dad passed along a popular yarn that fish eggs stick to duck feet and waterfowl spread those eggs far and wide. And many years later, as an adult journalist, Spencer decided he was going to dig into that theory because it, it seemed like it might be questionable.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, for the record, I've heard that my whole life. I've heard that a million times. That's yeah, how fish exactly. get places.
1: Yeah, duck feet. on,
2: on the, Yeah, duck feet.
1: So he started doing some research, and he quickly identified some, some, some issues with this idea, uh, including the fact that most fish eggs are just barely adhesive enough to, to delicately bind to aquatic vegetation, which would make it kind of hard for them to remain stuck to a duck's feet during takeoff <laughs> in flight.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Just like coming out of at, the water at, at
1: altitude. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing, like the chances of fish eggs surviving a high speed water landing on a duck's feet yep. are, are pretty slim, right? Yep. So those are, those are two strikes against this. And, and to quote Spencer's article, he said, this duck transfer theory seems to unravel under scrutiny. However, a couple listeners recently sent me a link to a Smithsonian Magazine article that might force Spencer to reconsider his conclusions. Turns out, though the idea of waterfowl transporting fish eggs on their feet is far-fetched, ducks may be smuggling fish eggs in a, a different way. The Smithsonian article described a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last summer titled Experimental Evidence of Dispersal of Invasive Cyprinid Eggs Inside Migratory Waterfowl. Note the word inside. The Smithsonian article has a catchier title Fish Eggs Can Survive a Journey Through
2: Both Ends of a Duck. Ah ha ha. I knew poop. I knew there was some poop coming. It's a poop issue. It's a poop issue. (laughs) (laughs) researchers in hungary fed
1: 500 fertilized common and prussian carp eggs to eight mallards and waited for the eggs to uh to re-emerge in plastic trays placed below the duck's enclosure in total 18 individual eggs passed through the duck's digestive tracts and three of those 18 went on to successfully hatch into baby carp. Ooh, interesting. Two Prussian carp and one common carp, meaning that 0.006% of the carp eggs consumed by mallard ducks in this study remained viable after journeying from one end of the bird to the other.
2: Lemmy Wings journeyed a distance far and fast
1: That number may seem insignificant. I mean, with that low of a survival rate, how could duck poop possibly be a factor in spreading fish populations? So we gotta put this in context, and to do that, we gotta do a little math. There are about 12 million mallards in North America alone. They're also quite common in Europe and Asia. And mallards love fish eggs. According to the lead author of the study, quote, if mallards find these spawning areas, they will go there and eat the eggs until they can't move. So if you assume just 10 million birds consume 1,000 fish eggs every year, that would equate to 60 million fertilized fish eggs popping out in mallard poop annually. Since mallards often travel up to 15 miles a day, the opportunity for dispersal could be significant. Now, all that said, the study is very preliminary, small sample sure, size, and it, sure. it actually brings up a lot of follow-up questions, right? Like the next thing the research team plans to look at is they're gonna they're gonna repeat the same experiment with other types of fish eggs to see if if this survival trait is unique to carp, because that would yeah. really matter. Uh and they don't talk about this in the article, but what I want to know is I want to know if fish eggs can survive a trip through other bird guts. Right. Yeah, there are 12 million mallards, but there are like more than 40 million ducks in North America, and a lot of them eat fish eggs. Sure. So there's still a lot to learn here, but it actually seems possible that that the old yarn about ducks transporting fish eggs had some truth to it. It's just that the old timers got the, the
2: the mechanism wrong. Sure. I mean, what pops into my head is Canada geese because right. around here, I mean, we got some ducks. There's ducks. There, They got ducks in Jersey. But I mean, I see more Canada geese than than mallards on a lot of the lakes and streams and things around here. So. I would point to them as a culprit. I, I, I have to imagine they eat certain amount of fish eggs too, and they're everywhere.
1: I don't know. I, I would imagine so too, but I, I, I don't know. There, that's what I'm saying. Like, there could be a lot of potential vectors for dispersal with with waterfowl. Sure. And we just don't know. So this is a fascinating one for a lot of reasons, not the least of which being there have long been all these questions like, how did these fish get here? You know those those spots. You're like, sure. How? <laughs> did perch get into this lake i don't know and we always blame bucket biology and
2: that could be it but it might actually be birds yeah no i I, interestingly though at least around here it's always seems to be tied to warm water species like the 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 duck connection comes up with carp or catfish or bass but like i've never like I've never heard of that happening with trout, you know what I mean? So more I also delicate, think though. That exactly, that's what I'm saying. So I I also think it's fascinating because it's obviously only going to be certain kinds of fish. They have to have a certain hardiness because dude, those there has to be acid in those stomachs. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. pretty impressive to yeah. to make it through that,
1: you know. Yeah. So I'll be curious to see if, if other fish can make it through there. And I think you're right, it's going to be warm water species. If there's another one that we'll work with my money would be on pike. Because those yes. bastards are everywhere, and you can't kill them. That'd be my yes. guess.
2: Yes, that is that is true. So I don't I don't have a great transition, other than to say uh, we've sort of busted a myth there, and we'll we'll bust uh, some more here with this little story. So as a media person, I always admire when a news story is presented in an interesting way, right? So I have to give props to the UK's Guardian. For this one and we've we've featured other stories in the past about the seafood industry pulling fast ones right either by renaming fish to make them sound more appealing or just straight up serving you different species than what's on the menu uh, but this has apparently gotten so rampant particularly in Europe but also in the US that the Guardian ran a story called could you spot the fake and turned it into a quiz and naturally huh. I aced it uh, but <laughs> it, it, naturally. It, it, it naturally I aced it, um, if I was only that good in, in Algebra 1. Uh, but it uh, it painted a really great picture of, of some of the most common fakes, which, again, occur here and there. Um, and when you answered, you'd get this little pop-up with, with more details that I thought were pretty good. So it, it was actually very interesting. And the first question, um, it, it would just say, This is often sold as red snapper. What is it really? And it's a picture of a tilapia. And then you have a multiple choice drop Uh. down, like what fish is this? And when you click the tilapia, it tells you red snapper is an extremely popular reef fish that has been overfished to the point that stocks are now extremely low in most of its habitats. Its cheaper common substitute is tilapia, right? Now, what they're doing with this quiz is, is, is posing the question of whether you would know the difference if it was served to you in a restaurant. And I feel like for that one, I would. I I, I, I would I know I would. I would know that I was at least eating a freshwater fish, not a saltwater fish. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of these. That's it's a really fun quiz. It's a very good time. And I'm not going to go through all of them. But um, one of the more interesting ones to me was you order delicious grouper, but what is the common substitute? And there's a photo of a catfish, right? And when you click on... Catfish, it says the Nassau grouper is critically endangered species from the Caribbean, while the dusky grouper is threatened in the Mediterranean Sea. In both cases, something else entirely is sold in their place. And this one hits for me because, again, like you and I can look at this with an angler's eye. This quiz is for just the consumer of seafood, but with an angler's eye, I would never order grouper anywhere. And I've known not to do that for years. I've only ever eaten grouper I caught because just in the U.S. alone— the seasons and the limits are so wonky that I never trust grouper on a menu. Like it's in, it's in every restaurant in the Keys and people just assume, oh, we're in Florida and there's grouper here. <laughs> well, that's true, but there's a strong chance that you're you're eating frozen grouper from the last time the season was open or you're eating something else entirely. And they assume the tourists don't know, which most of them probably don't. Uh, I don't know if that substitute happens here, but I thought that was fascinating. The Guardian was saying the most common substitute for grouper on a menu around the world is catfish. So that's two times. I did not know that. Right. That's two times already. Red snapper and grouper, two fish that are known to be delicious, that they're saying the most common substitutes are freshwater, farm-raised fish.
1: Man, I feel like the texture of those are so different.
2: Uh, So do I. But again, you, you, you eat a lot of fish, you catch a lot of fish, you clean a lot of fish. If you're just, you know, my grandma yeah. and grandpa yeah. going to uh, Red Lobster, you probably don't know. <laughs> and uh, the last one that tickled me was this one. White tuna is frequently on the menu, yet it does not actually exist. What is this fish that's used <laughs> as a stand-in? Now, in this, this is a case, right, of of, Ch- of Chilean sea bass style renaming. Because fishermen know damn well there's there's no such thing as a white tuna, and right. I've always known white tuna is actually a fish called an escalar, and they're deep sea dwellers, oil black and ugly as hell. They look kind of like oh, uh, but they're
1: so delicious.
2: Oh yeah, they look they look like a black king mackerel kind of. Yeah, um, yeah. But this story also says it's 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 usually escalar, but sometimes white tuna on a menu is butterfish. That's what is, I've heard it called. That's, okay, that's
1: the renaming I've heard for escalar is okay. butterfish.
2: Well, yeah, but butterfish is also a real fish. They're they're tiny bait fish that we buy here for chum, like for tuna oh, really? fishing. You buy a flat of them. They almost look like little pompano, silver pompano. I, um, that so I, I did not know. I, I didn't know that was a common a common swap there. I always thought it was always escalar. Uh, but I, I don't really care which one of those it is. Be, I, I, like fake me out. Don't give a shit because it is, as you mentioned, so buttery. Oh, it's so and good. delicious. Like it is white tuna is my absolute favorite sushi. I don't actually care if it's butterfish or what. Like it is just. And it, however, you also know that it's known as the laxative of the sea. So yes. you can't you can't binge yes, this I shit. No, like you, no, gotta, you add gotta add a couple. Be, in, you, gotta in, you gotta a couple pieces. Yeah, add a couple to your sushi deluxe. But like you can't yeah. you can't go all in. Um, and I've actually been on the dock in Louisiana several times. Like, mean mugging, taking photos with piles of yellowfin tuna we caught. And another boat, like, with complete noob tourists like that don't know what to do and come back in and they're all holding an Escalar. And I'm like, oh. Like, I, I want the Escalar. I wanted that. I want the Escalar. Yeah. I don't want these tuna. I want that Escalar. <laughs> so a, a, if you can find it online, the, the Guardian quiz, Could You Spot the Difference, it, it's it's fun. It'll kill a little time at work. Um, but also interesting because there's just so much shadiness out there. Yeah.
0: to the crickets so head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list
1: Sticking with salty species that people love, uh, mm-hmm. permit. Ooh, which you may be permit. aware of. Oh, permit I've, I've inspire. Heard of them. Yeah, maybe once or twice. <laughs> and we're joking because because these fish inspired this like level of obsession and reverence.
2: Oh, my God, among yeah. certain
1: anglers, that's I think it might be unparalleled, except for maybe with billfish. Like yep. the, the the permit love is 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 real. Yep, and there is some irony in how much people love permit because. Technically they're there are subspecies of jacks. Mm-hmm. And and jacks are like the trash fish of inshore angling. I mean, they're not like they're not like saltwater hardhead catfish level or dogfish, but outside of the state of Hawaii, I don't I know very few anglers who intentionally target jacks.
2: Yeah. No, I, I and I have a comment here, because same thing with permit. If you put a permit in deep water and throw a chunk of crab at it. It'll eat as quickly as a Jack Craval, as dumb and, and fast as just we'll get there. Wolf it. It's You're right. it's all it's situational. It's situational. Yes.
1: yes. But despite the fact that Jacks are kind of considered easy and stupid and and, and not that desirable, their big eyed, rubbery lip, blacktail cousins are a totally different story. People just lose their minds over permit. Like permit tattoos are oh, a yeah. thing. Uh I I know otherwise seemingly normal individuals who've spent <laughs> many years and sums of money that j- honestly far exceed my annual income <laughs> just trying to catch one single permit. One, just one. One. Yes, you're right. Which is, it's crazy. And and we, we might chalk this up as an example of, of anglers arbitrarily assigning value to one species of fish while denigrating another similar fish. But as we were alluding to earlier, there's some logic to the permit mania, at least... Logic by fishing standards, uh, unlike other kinds of jacks, permit can be maddeningly difficult to catch on artificial lures, and that's part of the reason why fly anglers go nuts for these fish because yep. they feed in shallow water, so it's sight fishing, and they're they're hyper critical of presentation. Speaking from experience, however, uh, if you drop a live crab in front of one, yes. it's probably going to get munched.
2: <laughs> yep. I have no <laughs> shame. Put, I don't care. <laughs> you can set that flyer out of and just...
1: Drop that live crab. It's going to work. Um, but because permit inspires such devotion, they're they're very valuable to local economies and the places where they can be found in significant numbers. Dedicated permit lovers save up all their spare time and money to travel to places like Belize, or Cuba, where permit populations are high and less pressured. But the original hub of permit fishing is the Florida Keys. Mm-hmm. And the lower keys is one of the only places they're consistently targeted in this country. For the past 50-plus years, anglers have been making annual pilgrimages to the southernmost tip of the continental U.S., trying to fool these black-tailed devils, and they bring their checkbooks and their credit cards with them. Mm -hmm. Despite that value, the Keys permit fishery has been largely taken for granted. Very little was definitively known about their spawning habits, for example— until the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, uh, a fisheries conservation nonprofit, began an acoustic tagging program in 2015 to figure out exactly when, where, and how permit reproduce. Results from that study indicated that about 70% of the permit that live in the Lower Keys congregate in one small area to spawn. Now, local anglers have long known that western dry docks located about 10 miles south of Key West, is a prime spot to find huge schools of permit, mutton snapper, yellowtail snapper, grouper, and other fish in the late spring and early summer. Mm -hmm. Many of those anglers were savvy enough to know that massive groups of fish congregating seasonally meant that they were spawning. Yep. Right? And so some chose to avoid the area during that time of year, but others would chase the high concentrations of fish. The Florida angling community grew sharply divided about the ethics of intentionally targeting the spawners, and and the area became a flashpoint of conflict. Regardless uh, of personal opinion and sense of morality, anglers who chose to fish there during spawning season were completely within their legal rights. That changed this year, when the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission established a four-month fishing closure in a one-mile area around western dry rocks. Ooh. In addition to the tagging study that showed the majority of the area's permit went there to reproduce, other studies showed a dramatically increased mortality for permit and mutton snapper that were hooked and released in that zone during spawning season. Because, see, anglers aren't the only ones who sometimes maybe take advantage of large concentrations of fish that are distracted by biological imperatives. Sharks do the same. Mm -hmm. And research showed that one-third of the fish released by anglers were getting eaten by sharks. So even if anglers weren't filling boxes, even if they weren't keeping anything, if they're like, no, I I release everything, I'm not hurting these fish, those numbers were still getting decimated, whether they knew them or not, because one-third of the fish that they released were getting T-boned. And now, the area is closed to all fishing, April through July. And and the decision is kind of amazing to me. It's being applauded by a whole host of different fishing and conservation groups that include the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, mm-hmm. Lower Keys Guides Association, IGFA, Florida Keys Fishing Guides Association, American Sport Fishing Association. Coastal Conservation Association, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Fly Fishers International, and Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation. Now, I only mentioned all those names, and you know this, because it is so rare to get yes. all those different orgs to agree on anything. Yes, like, it is. They won't even hardly agree that they all like to fish. Like, it's it's barely a thing that they agree on what color the sky is on a given day (laughs) to get them to come together and agree on a piece of legislation and rule change. To me, that signals a a ringing endorsement for this. And, and with that many different people on board, it's, it's gotta be sound.
2: Oh, dude. I mean, look, you talk to anyone who was fishing the keys in the seventies or eighties, they'll tell you that it pales in comparison, even though it's still a Mecca and it's still amazing fishing, Generally speaking, it's nothing like it used to be. So right. if these are the kind of drastic measures that need to be taken to preserve what's left of that old school Florida Keys fishery, uh, to me, this move makes absolute sense. Now, I'm sure there's uh, a handful of charter guys who are not so pleased. Not happy. Yeah. 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 But and I mean, we are talking about it as
1: drastic. It's a one mile area that's closed to fishing for four months.
2: Right. Yeah. Is that
1: drastic? I mean, it all depends on your perspective. No, right?
2: like, no, no, it's not. It, 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 I understand what you're saying. It's not like they closed the entire gulf out of Kiwa. I get it. It's like this one little area. But at the same time, if you come out and say, "Hey, this one mile area," how many people are like, "Ooh, that really makes me want to fish that one mile area." More? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you didn't. Yeah. it's Kind of like if you knew, you knew, and and there's there's, you know, what are you, what are you going to do about that? But also, you know, you tell me. You can't fish in this one mile for four months. I'm like, what is happening in that one mile? So, I mean, there could be... I hope they can they can police that, you know, or I do, do police that. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I. it's funny. People get so crazed over those fish. You've told me you've had no problem catching them on the fly.
1: I wouldn't say no problem. I've had better luck than most.
2: Yeah. Uh, I've, I've only tried it on the fly a couple times, but I'm, I'm not ate up with them. All, all the permanent I, I caught have been on bait, and, like, I was... Saying that they're, they're so funny because if you do it in 40 feet of water on a wreck, it's like fishing Jack Cravals, like no problem. Crab touches down, it's when they get shallow. Um, but dude, I, I think that's great, man. And even though I'm not part of that cult, I admire that obsession. I mean, we're talking about dudes who refuse to use glue on their flies, like they won't put a drop of, of cement or UV cure on a fly because the, like the fish. Permit, are that sensitive. Yeah, they can smell it a mile away and they'll they'll turn right off of it. I don't have the patience. I, I did it a few times and missed a few shots and I'm like, are there any barracudas around? Can we do that? <laughs> you know? But um did I think that's great and I do think that's amazing that all those organizations, like you say, it's rare that they all come oh, together. They
1: agree on nothing. So um, that, that says something to me.
2: Yeah, and the only transition I really have here for this one is that, you know, when you do get your shot and land your permit on the fly, I will assume you'll want to take a picture of it. Okay, and this is going to be a giant free commercial for Apple, but I don't care because it's a good <laughs> PSA, uh, and, and, and it's it's too good not to pass along, in my opinion. Um, and you know how like hooking yourself is kind of a rite of passage. You know what I mean? Like I always say, like if you've never had one, in you pass the barb, you're probably not fishing enough or maybe hard enough. Um, and I also feel like losing a cell phone in the drink is a similar rite of pass. It's like a modern rite of passage. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't don't believe I have any close personal angling buds that haven't sent me the, I got a new phone, lost all my contacts text. You know what I mean? Like at least one time. Uh, And I, I've personally donated three phones over the years. Anyway, I found this story on slash gear.com and it's about a woman in Canada, Angie Carrier, who dropped her iPhone 11 down the hole while ice fishing on West Lake in Saskatchewan in early 2021. Now, Most anglers, like me, as an example, would have said, well, there goes that, and off to the Verizon store, I would go. But not Angie, okay? She (laughs) was on a mission to recover this phone, and she made three separate trips back to the lake over the course of a month, loaded down with augers and Aquaview cameras and the works to get this phone back, right? Well about 30 days after she dropped it they finally located it was like the, it had to be like the titanic like the aquaview swept over and you're like oh, there it is there you know it what is. i mean they found it <laughs> and then spent 2 hours using a magnet on a string to get the iphone back and guess what it works perfectly according to angie after a month under the ice underwater okay now there there is a psa here so just bear with me Okay. Um, the iPhone 11 is, in fact, advertised by Apple as being waterproof, but only to two meters and only for thirty minutes. Like that's right. like the max two meters. Yeah. But this, this is the useful part. They actually interviewed um, a tech expert in the piece, and and the phone was down a little deeper than two meters. But he said what likely saved it was the stillness of the environment. So it hit the bottom, and laid there, one hundred percent undisturbed
1: so we i have to i have to ask one was there a case on this phone
2: no no case no case okay just no case just a protective cover no case and this this tech expert said if it was summertime and you had boat traffic or current or anything like that strong chance the gaskets would have failed so the point here that he makes is if you drop your phone in the drink whether it's an iphone 11 or otherwise if, if you can, try to retrieve it quickly and as gently as possible. Like, if you're knocking it and flipping it along the bottom with a landing net, trying to get it, stronger chance it'll be toast. And even if you drop one in, in like, super shallow water on the edge, he says, you know, pick it up really slowly, really gently. Don't, like, violently snatch it and grab it and, like, move it around underwater because the the less it's disturbed once it hits the drink, the better shot of saving your phone. So yeah. you're
1: saying fight your natural inclination, which is to fight like your natural like, rapidly oh, shit, and like get, get that thing like out of there to yeah.
2: rip it out of the water. Right. You have right. a better shot of saving your shit if you just gently pick it up and slowly pull it out of the water. Interesting. So okay. I I mean i I found that useful. However, I like while I feel better about inevitable sogginess now that i personally have an iphone 11 i still question just how you know quote perfect angie's phone really is because i dunked my last iphone which was an eight i believe and that was also supposed to have some level of resistance and while everything appeared fine and i lost no data and and everything worked the camera lens microphone and speaker were shot like Mm -hmm. once you get water behind that camera lens there's no going back. And like, it was, it was completely garbled. Um, so, you know, look, some people are very anti-Apple. In fact, I recently got in a heated debate over this um, with our friend Ross Robertson, in which he called me an ostrich with, with my head in the sand because I shan't be swayed off of Apple products. But this story is a big checkbox for Apple for anglers, as, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, also for any of you saying, as you brought up, well, just get a, a just get a case, get a life proof case right? Remember LifeProof?
1: Oh, of course. I had several of those cases. Here's
2: another PSA, right? Like they'll keep your phone dry, but nobody will be able to hear you. Okay. So (laughs) that's exactly (laughs) what my issue
1: was with them. (laughs) I had to take it out of the case to have a conversation.
2: And it's not easy to get them in and out of the case. Okay. No. And I don't know if you had the same experience, but When they first came out, this is going back a long time now, when they first hit the market, they were the bomb. Like, my first one lasted the entire life of my phone, no problem. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if they changed where they manufactured or cut corners or what. But, like, the next four that I had, and I even would send some back for a free replacement, like, this one's screwed up. I need another one. Dude, I got so tired of people like people telling me they couldn't hear me, which irks me. Anytime I want to call, and they're like, "What? I can't hear you?" I just hang up, and I'm like, "I'll call you back later." That drives me insane. I literally ripped the last two life proof cases off my phone and like threw them in the closest trash receptacle. <laughs> couldn't take it anymore.
1: No, it it protects your phone, but it ceases to function as a phone. Yeah, it's so true.
2: So yeah, yeah. Then you can't actually talk to anybody. So uh, little techie, little little PSA there. Um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll see what Phil thinks on this one. I also want to hear about the punk band. And then as soon as we're done hearing from Phil, we actually have a fishing report, pre-spawn report, pre-spawn, pre-spawn from from our Bass Pro buddy on the tour, Rant Stimpkins, who um, probably can't afford an iPhone 11, but, uh,
4: we'll see what he's got shaking out there. Joe Sermelli, you kind of trojan horse a tackle hack into that last news segment, and for that, hey, you're our winner. My favorite punk band. I have two answers for this. One, the one I think you're looking for, I'll call it my CBGB answer, is television. Love television. Now, I am of the age, and this is what I will call my Warped Tour answer. My embarrassing answer. While you were smoking cigarettes, listening to Circle Jerks behind the bait shop, and I was behind the video game store trading Yu-Gi-Oh! cards answer. We're talking bands like Yellow Card, Jimmy World, Motion City Soundtrack, Pop Punk Joe. That's what I liked. I can feel you shivering from two time zones away. I know. You thought MXPX was going to be my lame answer? (laughs) Joke's on you. Listen, these bands were unfairly maligned at the time as just bait for faux emo preteens, but their pop, songwriting sensibilities, and knack for melodies elevated them above a lot of the bands of that early 2000s generation. God, and everyone thought I was so cool after that Pokemon segment a couple weeks ago.
3: Hey y'all, your favorite professional bass fisherman, Rant Stimpkins here with a little update from the tour. I'm sure y'all already heard how close I came to placing in the Bass Open event at Lewis Smith Lake yesterday. If it weren't for a run of bad luck, I'd have been in the money for sure, but that's all right. I'm fixing to give them hell on Douglas in Tennessee. This is gonna be my tour. I can feel it. Well, right now I'm stuck idling in the parking lot of a flying jay just outside of old Eastaboga. Wouldn't you know it, I wiped my ass with the only buff I had. What had happened was I bought some bull of peanuts off a of feller selling them out of the back of a Chevy. They caught up to me on Highway 65 yesterday. I plumb forgot about this no-mass-no-entry bullshit at all these truck stops. About 20 minutes ago, I gave my last $5 to some guy named Arlo and asked him if he'd please run in and buy me one of them hot dogs. I reckon he should be back any minute now. Anyway, you ain't here for my culinary advice. Y'all want some juicy pre-spawn advice, so listen up. I noticed over on Lewis they wasn't responding to nothing I was throwing. I was in all the right places, but even the custom square bills with the blood crackle paint I traded my backup trolling motor battery for wasn't doing shit. I knew right then and there I was going to have to pull out the big guns. I tied on my last four-inch Yamamoto creature in light blurple and slung it to the stumps. Fish ate it before it ever touched down. I threw that little 1-3 in the well and started feeling like I was finding my rhythm, but I got a little too excited after feeling that good old wiggle, hung that bait up on the very next cast. Of course, I went in after it, but my trolling motor hit a stump, bucked, and knocked the damn whole rod out of my hands. Luckily, one of the older guys gave me a spare outfit after weigh-in. It's missing a few guides and the reel sounds like rocks in a coffee can, but it ain't nothing a little WD-40 and some zip ties can't fix. Shit i fished worse. I figured the guy did it because when I'm on stage at the Classic someday, he wants to tell his kids he helped me get there. Uh, hold on a second. Arlo! Shit. That ain't him. Anyway, I gotta scrape up enough cash to buy at least three bags of Yamamotos and some of that Ozark Trail braid before I get to Douglas. So if any of y'all in the northern Alabama, Tennessee-ish area are looking for a pro to speak at y'all's fishing club, shoot me a DM. Also, if you're interested in buying a CB radio, got a fence that needs a little mended, or need someone to mind your kids while they're on the Zoom school all day, call Daryl over at the Dollar General and leave a message for me. Otherwise, I'll holler at y'all again right after I cash that fat Douglas check. See you later.
2: I love Rance, dude. Yep. I really do, and I wish him all the best. He's got <laughs> heart. Kids got moxie. And if you think about it, I mean, Rance is kind of like the punk band that's still hustling in the garage. You know what yeah. I mean? Like booking gigs at the local VFW, like we For used like to. Like four people. Yeah, four people exactly. And if nothing else, maybe like maybe he'll just inspire just like one other kid to follow his dreams of, of bass fishing greatness. That's all it takes. Yeah. No, you're <laughs> you're about to. Dis- I mean, maybe, <laughs>
1: maybe I wouldn't. Like I don't look at Lance's life and be like, damn, that seems glamorous to me. Like I. <laughs> Even if he made it big, I don't think he would change much. You know, like right. like maybe he'd he'd order the deluxe gas station burrito, right? <laughs> or oh wait, no, no. You know what he'd do? He'd pony up for the big bag of jerky instead of the knockoff. Oh barbecue, yeah, the fifteen dollar bag. Yeah, the yeah, fifteen dollar bag no, no instead can of the three dollar that's bag, that's you know bag with three pieces it. of jerky. <laughs> it's a rare treat. But even for I, me. I'm be, like, dude, what do I know? Like I, yeah. that that probably is some kid's dream. You never, the truth is like, you don't know which people or bands or anglers or whatever will turn out to be massively inspirational and and, and influential until way later, until far into the future. And that's actually the case with the, with the lure that Joe's covering this week in the end of the line. It rose to glory, made history without knowing it was making it and paved the way for countless other great lures. But just like you can still download Op Ivy music on iTunes today, this lure continues to have dedicated fans. Uh,
2: Fishy, 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 fishy. That's not loud enough, Bert. You can't escape swimbait culture. These days it makes very little difference what you target because there's a swimbait for that. Swimbaits are a loosely defined class of fishing lures that Imitate fish, which doesn't really say much because lots of lures that aren't considered swim baits imitate fish. But what we can all agree on is that swim baits, like tacos, are available in harder soft varieties, and it's the soft ones that have really become ubiquitous across all fisheries. Chasing smallmouth? Tie on a little 3.5-inch Ky-Tech swing impact. Muskies? Go for the 8.25-inch defiant trout. Crappies, you say? The 2.5-inch Z-Man Slim Swims have you covered. Regardless of size, what all these soft plastics have in common is a paddle tail, or a modified paddle tail that thumps away when you reel, creating both action and vibration. This style of bait is so commonplace now that it's not even really a thing worth talking about anymore. It's, it's been around so long that it's hardly considered innovative. But how did we get to a place where there are 25 or more varieties of soft plastic swim bait at any given tackle shop? Most people credit the California big bass scene that bloomed in the 1980s with kicking off the swimbait craze, and that's not totally inaccurate. The lure-building pioneers of that era may have created the demand for big swimbaits designed to catch big-ass fish, many of which were super expensive in the early days. But to say those lures led to smaller, cheaper, widely available swimbaits isn't totally true. Ask any of those early swimbait makers what inspired them, and many will point to Mr. Twister's Sassy Shad. With so many soft plastic bait companies around today, I think it's fair to say that Mr. Twister has kind of been sidelined. Yes, we all know this company made the curly tail grub a staple in fishing, and there's a strong chance you still buy Mr. Twister grubs today. I mean, I certainly do. But we're not exactly hearing the pros praise their latest innovations on the tournament trail. But what people might not realize is that in the 1980s, Mr. Twister was a titan not just because of the curly tail, but because when they dropped the Sassy Shad, it was revolutionary. The Sassy Shad was really the first mass-produced, widely available paddle tail swimbait to hit the market. And furthermore, Mr. Twister produced them in a wide range of colors and sizes that appealed to everything from crappies to largemouths to stripers. All you had to do was stick one on a jig head, cast and reel. They were also no more expensive than any other soft plastics at the time. Personally, I have a very distinct recollection of buying a few packs of small sassy shads as a young lad, but not really catching a whole lot on them. And maybe that's because I didn't give them a fair shake, but it certainly didn't feel like I was fishing something revolutionary at the time. Strong chance, that's because while these lures were certainly pioneers, they also had shortcomings. The plastic Mr. Twister used was stiffer than modern plastics. Injection molding techniques at that time didn't really allow for realistic colors and patterns. You mostly had solid or two-tone options, perhaps with some glitter mixed in. Lore historians also point to a design flaw. Yes, the Sassy Shad had a paddle tail, but compared to modern paddles that tend to be large and really, really ramp up vibration, the Sassy's tails were pretty small, making its kick pale in comparison to present-day offerings. By the early 1990s, there were no shortage of sassy Shad copycats on the market, many with more effective tails. Still, even then, most were fairly rigid, limited in color, and required an external jig head. It wasn't until Storm introduced the Wild Eye Shad in the early 2000s, complete with an internal jig head and snazzy holographic finishes, that the paddle tail craze really kicked into high gear. Mr. Twister still produces the Sassy Shad, which tells me they still must have devoted fans in the freshwater scene, I just don't happen to know any. And while a Sassy Shad, or a Sassy Shad knockoff, may not be the first swimbait anyone is tying on for Snook or Stripers these days, they have carved a niche in the saltwater scene, particularly in the Northeast, for the countless dudes trolling umbrella rigs that might feature a dozen or more Sassy Shads. That harder plastic stands up to all that drag and water resistance far better than new school plastic, and if a bluefish clamps down on one of your shads, it might not get cut in half, and if you need to replace shads within your umbrella rig, you can do so very cost-effectively. I can't honestly remember the last time I saw a bag of large sassy shads for sale in a northeast tackle shop. In fact, maybe I never did, because just like when I was a kid, these baits are usually sold individually often displayed on the bottom shelf in repurposed tubs that once held bulk cream cheese or perhaps macaroni salad. The only real difference is that instead of being 50 cents a piece like they were at Bayside Bait and Tackle circa 1994, I reckon they're pushing about three bucks a pop these days.
1: That's all the time we have for this week. Remember, if you're headed to the thrift store, keep an eye out for an O'Shitsky's t-shirt, Grab all the Op Ivy 7-inches you can find, but don't ask Jesse Michaels to sign any of them. <laughs> Purchase that hazy Ziploc bag full of old-school shads if you're feeling sassy. And if you're looking for a lightly used CB radio, we got a guy.
2: We do. We got that guy. And if you've got any questions, comments, concerns, bar nominations, salement items, or awkward photos to share, we're always on CB Channel 19. And my handle is Coyote. Or just email all that stuff to bent at the dot We'll see it there as well too. <laughs> <laughs> Jazzbone
1: Coyote, I don't I don't have a follow up to that.
2: I, well, I don't want to get long, but I actually got that off of a CB handle generator online. That's like amazing. that is like my personal yeah. That's amazing. I'm sticking with it. <laughs>
1: uh, don't forget those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags on the gram. We are watching you at all times. Hopefully, those of you who liked rocking out in the car to our old music are digging the new jam or at least we hope you'll get used to it
2: that's yes but remember eyes on the road don't give yourself whiplash and phil crank it up